Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of Rabbi Avi Havivi's weekly Sidur class. We're now in the last three, and we said again, uh, first three and last three are the same in all services, except for the change from Sim Shalom to Shalom Rav. And the first three are Shevach, praise, the middle 13 are Bakasha, request, and the last three are, call, are referred to as being in the category of Hoda'ah, which means gratitude. So we'll ask as we go along, why are these three, why is this section called gratitude? So, Ritzei Hashem Elokeinu Ba'amcha Yisrael Uvit Filatam. Lirzot in modern Israeli Hebrew means to want, wish, to want, but in rabbinic Hebrew, it doesn't, or uh, biblical Hebrew, it doesn't mean that. It means to be favorably disposed towards something. Uh, can't even really say it in, in English translated as favor, but it means accept favorably or look on something favorably. Like if I'm, uh, you know, asking you something or apologizing to you, Ritzay, Lirzot, means that you are favorably disposed towards me. It always involves a relationship between two entities. Okay? So, accept is kind of a reasonable translation. So, be favorably disposed, Hashem Elokeinu, towards Ritzay, B is to be disposed, favorably disposed towards your nation, Israel, your people, Israel, and their prayer. And return, reestablish, return, like tshuva, worship. Avodah literally means labor, but metaphorically it means service, meaning worship. The same way in English, we say service, and it means both to provide a service as well as services. So it's similar. So restore worship to, translate here as your sanctuary, technically the devere in uh, First Temple Hebrew and the Chumash means um, holy of holies. So technically means the holy of holies of your house, Um which, of course, is not where most of the worship took place, right? Most of the worship in the temple took place in the house and outside in the courtyard where the sacrifices were offered, whereas the worship in the Holy of Holies was actually only once a year. So I don't think this is meant to be about Yom Kippur, and I'm not really sure that Vir is used in a strict term here to mean Holy of Holies. I think they just mean to the building your house, Meaning, of course, the Beit HaMikdash, the temple. So Hashem, accept our prayers and restore worship to the temple. So we're talking about, at this point, presumably two different things, because our prayers is what we've been engaged in, okay, starting at 7.30 a.m., 7.15 on Rosh Chodesh and, and Cholomoed. Um, and then the second line is about Restoration of sacrifice. Then we go back to Utfilatam Biavat Kabel Bratzon and their prayer, meaning Israel's prayer, <laughs> lovingly accept favorably. Or possibly, this would be a 
minority interpretation, maybe maybe a midrashic stretch, probably not the pshat. Tfilatam be'ava could mean and their prayer, which they do lovingly, except favorably. That the ahava refers to prayer, right? It's something that it's a, a quality that imbues our prayer. And ratzon, except favorably, um, is God's. Uh, as it were, ava is our uh, feeling state, emotional tone, and ratzon is God's emotional tone. That's actually a nice interpretation because our, you know, we do our tefillah with ahava. God does his Kabbalah accepting with ratzon. I'm not sure that's really what the pshat is. I think the pshat is probably, and their prayer lovingly receive favorably. Be'ava and biratzon being a kind of parallel. Utihi l'ratzon tamid avodat Yisrael amecha. And may the worship of your people Israel be accepted favorably by you always, tamid. Although, perhaps, midrashically, and I'll come back to this point, what else does tamid mean? If tamid is not an adverb, but a noun. It's a sacrifice. Say it again. Sacrifices or... So the tamid is the daily sacrifice. We, We usually translate it into English as the perpetual sacrifice, right? Which means... The morning and even morning and afternoon offering in the Beit Hamikdash was called the Tamid, right? And in the Torah, it's called Olat Tamid, a perpetual sacrifice. Perpetual, not in the sense that it goes on for twenty-four hours a day, but perpetual in the sense that it's a daily pr- uh, practice indefinitely, rather than let's say a special one like for Shabbat or festivals, right? The daily ritual, morning and afternoon, is called the Tamid. Um, and there's a tractate in uh, the Mishnah called Masechet Tamid, Tractate Tamid. It is about how to do the daily sacrifice, how the daily sacrifice was done in the temple in ancient times. So given right. that we're, we've already gotten in this prayer into the realm of sacrifice, that could also mean, may it be accepted by you graciously, Tamid Avodat Yisrael Amecha, the Tamid sacrifice of the worship of your people Israel. That would fit neatly because then we'd say if, if we divided what I just said into four lines, which are divided in our Sidur by commas, what am I talking about? Prayer. What am I talking about? Sacrifice. What am I talking about? Prayer. What am I talking about? Sacrifice. All right? So maybe tamid as a secondary meaning could mean that. Again, I don't know if that is an intentional double entendre on the part of the author or if it's kind of midrashic. Um, you know, you never know with those things. So basically in this paragraph, we are linking our prayer to the sacrifices in ancient times. And we're saying, and we hope to do them again in the future. So in, in one sense, Ritze is part of a group of three blessings that were kind of interrupted by Shema 
you, right? We might say 14, 15, 17 are all about uh, restoration to Jerusalem, restoration of Davidic kingship and rebuilding of the Beit HaMikdash. That kind of fits together nicely, right? As a sequence. Um, and it's interesting that this is actually, seems to be the first mention that we've had in the entire Amida that prayer and sacrifice are linked. We know that that's kind of one of the classical answers that's given. Tractate Brachot says, why do we daven three times a day? And different answers are given. When different answers are given, what that usually means is none of them is actually the correct original answer and their ex post facto attempts to find an explanation. So davening was three times a day. The Gemara says, why? One answer that's given is the patriarchs, Avraham instituted Shachrid and uh, Yitzchak instituted Mincha and Yaakov instituted Mariv. And there's a proof text, a line for each one of those, where it says the sage did something, which clearly in the pshat of the Chumash, the Torah text does not mean prayed, but is midrashically taken to mean prayed. So that's one answer, the, the three patriarchs. The other answer is sacrifices, which is a little tricky then because there were two perpetual sacrifices per day, not three, okay? So the Talmud ends up saying a couple of things. One is that the, because the, the second sacrifice, the mincha, was not a nighttime. It was before nightfall in the late afternoon, right? So then why do we do, if, if the um, Amida three times a day, the services three times a day commemorate sacrifices. Why do we daven Mariv? So the Gemara's answer, well, Mariv is for the various, um, sorry for the vegetarians, limbs, leftover limbs and parts of the animal sacrifices that were offered during the day that could be burnt on the altar, that were burnt on the altar all night long. So all night long was the sacrifices of all of the leftovers in a literal sense of the sacrifices from the day. Um, uh, and uh, that is also then part of, given that it, the Mariv does not actually commemorate the Tamid, which was morning and afternoon. That's one of the reasons, perhaps, that Mariv was originally seen in Mishnaic times as optional. Although in Talmud times, it came to be seen as an optional thing that all of B'nai Yisrael accepted upon themselves as obligatory. Therefore, it was an optional thing that became obligatory but halachically was in a slightly different category than Shachrit or Mincha. So it's interesting that we've all, we've all, you know, grew up hearing, you know, why do we daven in three times a day? The temple was destroyed. Prayer uh, replaces sacrifice. Um, this is actually the first place in the whole Amidah, I think, where we've seen any mention of that at all, where we clearly and explicitly link prayer to sacrifice, both past Okay, the sacrifice that took place in the temple in Jerusalem, as well as future. Okay, and the word that kind of um, elides uh, prayer and sacrifice is avodah, right? Because avodah literally means service or worship. Clearly, in the context of biblical times and when the temple was standing, it means sacrifice. There's no question about that, right? So. So avodah, and, you know, if you're talking about when the temple is standing, avodah does not mean prayer. It definitely means sacrifice. 
Um, and uh, the Talmud says, what do we have now that the temple is gone to worship God? We have tefillah, which is avodah shebalev. It is the sacrificial service which is enacted um, by our um, by our lave, our heart, meaning our our mind, our uh, emotional and intellectual capacity. Okay, so avodah means worship, and it can mean sacrifices, or it can mean prayer, depending on the context. And here, I think the word is used intentionally to combine tefillah and the tamid. Clearly, vashevet ha'avodah lidvir beitecha, return the avodah to your house, restore the avodah to your house, clearly means, uh, or sorry, the pshat, simple meaning is restore sacrificial worship to your house. It does not literally mean and bring our prayers back to your house. It doesn't mean can we go up on the Temple Mount and daven, right, the way some people do, uh, even though they're, they're, they get in trouble. Uh, if they daven too, um, too explicitly, they shuckle too much, the, the border police come over to them and they say, stop shuckling. If you go up to the Temple Mount and you daven now. Um, whereas Utehil Ratzon Tamid, Avodah Yisrael Amecha, may you forever accept favorably the Avodah of your people Israel, in that line, clearly Avodah can go one way or the other, right? It can mean prayer or it can mean sacrifice. Now, Joanna, no doubt, is about to say, because she has said before, there are two words in the traditional Sidur. Joanna, were you going to say that? Uh, two words in the traditional Sidur um, that are not in this particular edition of the conservative Sidur. Those words are Ishe Israel, the fire, offering, fire offerings of Israel. And the traditional Sidur says, Ritzei Hashem Yisrael which then would translate line three as, and the fire offerings and the prayers of Israel accept favorably, meaning a line that clearly links or makes some connection, equivalence, whatever you want to call it, parallelism between fire offerings, which is generally understood to mean sacrifices, and tefillah. By the way, tefillah really means tefillah. It does not mean sacrifices, right? So avodah can mean worship in the temple, or it can mean prayer worship. Tefillah clearly means prayer, not sacrifices. So the Ishe Yisrael utfilatam makes explicit fire offerings, which is generally understood to be sacrifices and prayer. So Hashem and accept favorably fire offerings and prayer, which means in the future time, sacrifice will not replace prayer. So although prayer replaces sacrifice in classical rabbinic theology, uh, sacrifice when it's restored, which we're praying for in this, in this line, is not going to replace prayer, which means even when the Beit HaMikdash is rebuilt and the sacrificial service starts again, we're still going to daven. That seems to be the implication here. Okay. Because there's a parallelism between the two. Now, um, the conservative movement has gone through various iterations of this. So uh, the earliest iteration, which was kind of from the 40s, which is my favorite um, way of dealing with challenging passages, 
I'm I'm saying that with some facetiousness, my favorite, is it's left in in the Hebrew and they don't translate it in the English. So that was kind of the the early version of conservative movement changing things that were deemed to be offensive in the Sidur. And the idea behind that was like, okay, if you daven in Hebrew, you're a traditional Jew and you want to say the traditional words. If you're the kind of person who davens in the English, you'll be offended by it. And so we will just leave it out. Um, so that was a, that was kind of the style, you know, and you could look at various editions of the black Silverman Sidur and see that the Israel, the black Silverman Sidur that many of us grew up with in conservative schools on Shabbat. And there are some editions from the forties where the Israel is there in Hebrew, but not translated in English. Um, and then starting with more recent editions, it was left out. Like this is, let's be intellectually honest. Let's say the same thing in English that we say in Hebrew. Let's not use an English translation to erase a meaning that we're theologically uncomfortable with. That became the style in the 70s and onwards. Let's be honest about what we're saying in the Sidur. Um, and then a number of years ago, there is a tshuva or rabbinic responsum written by Rabbi Jeremy Kalmanovsky, who's a conservative rabbi in New York. You can find it online. I'm sure if you just Google, I can't do it now because I'm in the main sanctuary, but maybe I'll try to do it for next week. And I'm going to be here again next week. So uh, but, so if anyone can find it and put it in the chat anyway, you can just Google Kalmanovsky, K-A-L-M-A-N-O-F-S-K-Y and Ishe Yisrael, spelled I-S-H-E-I. Yisrael. Okay. So he wrote a true rabbinic responsum in which he says we should restore the phrasing of Ishe Yisrael. And he cites several traditional commentaries where the Ishe Yisrael is interpreted not only to mean fire offerings, meaning clearly animal sacrifices, but also uh, times when it's interpreted, you know, the good deeds of the righteous are Ishe Yisrael. So his attitude is, why, if we have a passage or a phrase, by the way, this is a meta issue, okay? Uh, we talked about it a lot when we talked about Birchot um, HaShachar, about, you know, thank you, God, for not making me a woman, right? We talked about that a lot. If you remember, we talked about what are the various ways in which one could um, deal with what feels like a theologically troublesome passage in the Daphne, right? You could leave it in and say, I wrestle with it. You could delete it. You could rewrite it. You could leave it in in Hebrew, but change it in the English translation. Those are four ways. I think we came up with another one or two. You, you could leave it in the Hebrew, but translate it creatively in the English translation. So that was the fifth one. Maybe there are only five, right? So uh, he says, his argument is, if we encounter something that we experience as theologically troublesome. We do not want to pray for the restoration of animal sacrifices. By the way, I want to point out, praying for the restoration of the temple and temple service is not necessarily the same thing as praying for the restoration of animal sacrifices. Okay, so we see in our conservative Musaf, um, in most conservative Sidurim, we pray for the restoration of the temple, but then we put the sacrifices in the past tense. 
we say, may we worship there in the temple in the future, the way our ancestors did the animal sacrifices, she'asu v'hikrivu, as opposed to the traditional sidur, which says na'asev and akriv. The sacrifices, may we offer them in the future. The conservatives, the conservative sidur changes it. All, all the conservative sidurim, as far as I know, say asu v'hikrivu our ancestors did before you. So in the conservative musaf, in any conservative sidur printed today, any edition you have, it says, please rebuild the temple, restore us to going to the temple, visiting you, God, in the temple, where our ancestors offered sacrifices, meaning the the conservative version of Musaf in English and Hebrew decouples the traditional assumption that rebuilding of the temple implies restoration of animal sacrifice. We could rebuild the temple, we could worship there, and we could daven. Or it could be like, you know, if you've been to those Buddhist shrines where you see on the altar, you know, they heap up rice and they heap up fruit and they heap up, you know, in the temple of the future, they could heap up tofu. Who knows, right? Um, So Rabbi Kalmanovsky says in a passage that we might find theologically troublesome, if that passage could be interpreted in a variety of ways, why do we have to interpret it the way we disagree with and then say, therefore, we need to delete it instead of interpreting it a way that we can agree with and therefore include it, right? Behind that, I'm going to say that once again because it's a long sentence, okay? His argument is, if we encounter a passage that can be interpreted different ways, some ways are theologically troublesome, you could call it offensive if you want to, and some ways of interpreting are not theologically troublesome. Why do we take the route, why should we take the route of it means something offensive, therefore we have to delete it, rather than I keep it in, we keep it in, and interpret it in a way that we find less offensive, if that is an option. Shalom Asani Isha, who has not made me a woman, that's a lot more of a stretch to interpret in a way that is not theologically troubling, so we change it. But Isha Israel can mean the deeds of the righteous, so why aren't we, why don't we keep it in and say, and Hashem rebuild the temple and the deeds of the righteous and our prayers always accept in perpetuity favorably in the future? Why does it have to mean fire offerings? Fire offerings, if it can mean more than one thing, even if it the shot is it usually means fire offerings, which is which are sacrifice. Um, if anyone has questions, when we get to questions, um, you'll have to wave me down because um, I can't read the chat because it's too far away from me. Just so you know. Okay, posted the link. Thank you, Larry. So I encourage everyone to read that article. You know, if it's too dense, you can skim it, but it's a it's not a hard read. Um, so I, it makes an interesting point. Um, and behind that argument, I just want to say, is the bias, of course, of trying to keep as much text, traditional text of the Sidur as possible, right? That makes for a greater uniformity of davening in the world. You go anywhere in the world and it's the same words that you're saying in Hebrew. So if we can keep words and interpret them in a way that um, makes sense to us theologically, 
why don't we do that? Instead of making the assumption of it's interpret, I interpret it the way I don't like it. And that is why I have to change it. So it's a very interesting argument. Um, the, I believe the contemporary Sidurim that have come out, Lev Shalem did not bite and they have not brought back the Isha Israel as far as I know. So just because, um, uh, uh, a conservative rabbi writes a tshuva, a response upon it, which was accepted by the Committee on Jewish Law and Standards, doesn't necessarily mean that the sidur editors have to do what that rabbi says. Okay? So I, as far as I know, in the uh, Lev Shalem, they did not, uh, if anyone, I don't know, but, uh, Nathan, would you grab me a Lev Shalem off the cart and bring it over here? I didn't actually look before. Oh, Larry has it. Never mind. No, no, Larry has it. Larry's going to look it up. Yeah. You, uh, so Larry asked the Sidur editor of the Lev Shalem that question. Why didn't you restore Ed, Rabbi Ed, why didn't you restore the Isha Israel going along with Rabbi Kalmanovsky's response? And what did Rabbi Feld say, Larry? They might be working on a weekday sidur and it might have it. And who knows, it might have it in brackets or parentheses or something, which is the other way, by the way, of doing that's way number six, right? Of, of, of dealing with challenging passages is putting it in parentheses or, or brackets. By the way, there are some uh, of the contemporary Orthodox sidurim written for the Anglo world, printed for the Anglo world that have brought back the line in the Alenu, the traditional line that was censored out. For they bow down, they, the Gentiles, bow down to emptiness, vanityness, and nothingness, right? Which was censored out of the Sidur, right before Vanach Nukorim, which was censored out of the traditional Sidur. So there are some contemporary Orthodox Sidurim that bring it back. And some editions I've seen have parentheses around it, right? That's their way. That's way number six of dealing with uh, uh, a passage that you feel troublesome. Um, so I've seen different editions of the Saks Sidur, and I actually discussed this, the so-called, the, the Koren Saks Sidur, which is in different editions. And I actually, because uh, I was once doing a, researching something about Alenu, and I actually contacted someone who works for the publisher saying, oh, that's interesting. In this edition, it has parentheses. And that, does that mean, it was basically in the, in the Rob Soloveitchik edition of the Koren Sidur, it's in parentheses. So I thought, oh, that's interesting. That must mean, according to Rob Soloveitchik, he was doubtful as to whether you restore the line or not. And I called up someone who worked for the publisher, and I said, does this reflect Rob Soloveitchik's theology? And the answer, <laughs> it's a very funny answer. The answer was, no, there was some Orthodox shul in Baltimore that was ordering a thousand copies, and they would agree to pay for it only if the parentheses was around that line. It has nothing to do with reflecting Rav Soloveitchik's theology. So I, I, I got a kick out of that. So the, the prayer book publishing decisions are sometimes not made by, sometimes made by someone's ideology, but not necessarily the ideology of the person you would think. They said, the rabbi in Baltimore said, I want the one with parentheses and will pay for a thousand copies, but only if it has parentheses around that line. Okay, um, but so far, there's no parentheses around the Ishe Israel, fire offerings of Israel. It's either there or it's not there. In traditional Orthodox Yerim, there is there are no compunctions whatsoever about um, 
praying for restoration of sacrifices. So it's there. And in most conservatory dream, it's not, but maybe it'll make a comeback. Who knows? Then the closure, the May we get to see with our own eyes you returning to Zion compassionately, lovingly. Baruch Hashem HaMachazir Shechinato who restores your presence to Zion. So clearly, this bracha ends on a note that emphasizes sacrifice. I think that's inescapable, or, or at least temple worship, okay? So we link our prayers to the sacrifices. We're, we don't say that our prayers are commemoration of the sacrifices. We, that's implied. It's not said explicitly. And then begin by saying, and then forever, except Ishe Israel and Tfilah, both sacrifices and prayer. Hashem, may we see you come back to the Beit HaMikdash. Baruch Hashem HaMachazir Now, just to head off a quick question of the, at the pass, um, if the 13 middle brachot are bakashot, asking for things, and this is supposed to be the section where we thank God and don't ask for things, hey, doesn't it seem like this bracha is asking for something? It is asking God to accept our prayer favorably and to come back to the Jerusalem temple and accept our sacrifices. We are asking for something. So the Gemara asked, the Talmud asked that question. And the answer is what it means when we say that the middle section of the Amidah is about requests is it's only about individual and personal requests. Those go in the middle of the Amidah, but elsewhere in the Amidah, we can make communal requests because clearly blessed bracha number 17 when we pray for God to come back to Zion and bracha number 19, when we ask for Shalom clearly are requests, no two ways about it. Right. But they are communal requests. They're requests for on behalf of the entire people of Israel that affect the entire people of Israel rather than individual requests. So if you had some individual prayer about the temple, you know, like I want to go to Israel for Sukkot and go to the Kotel uh, like if you had a prayer like that, um, you would not insert it in this bracha. Again, no changes are made to the first three or the last three brachot. You would, uh, you would put, you could put that in your shomeat filah, or you could put that in your, you know, the mikabetz kibbutz galuyot in gathering of the exiles bracha if you wanted to, but you would not insert that here because you don't make any individual insertions here. Um, a couple of other things: the Cairo Geniza version which presumably reflects early Eretz Yisraeli text, not Babylonian changes, has a different chatimah. It ends, Baruch atah Hashem she'otcha levadcha na'avod. Blessed are you, Hashem, we worship you alone. Whom we, whom alone we worship. So that's probably the original Bracha. Lawrence Hoffman, who's a scholar of the Sidur, teaches at HUC, he has a whole article about how he tries to excavate what's the core Bracha. His theory is there was a core Bracha which existed before 70. This is one of the earliest Brachot in the Sidur, before the destruction of the temple, which was only about sacrifices. And he says that, I, I can't go into the details, he says that Bracha read as follows. Ritzei Hashem Elokeinu Be'amcha Yisrael. Look favorably upon your people Israel. 
ve'ishei Yisrael bi'avat tikabel bratzon, and lovingly accept the fire offerings of your people Israel, u'tehil ratzon tamid avodat Yisrael amecha, and may the uh, worship perpetually be favorable before you, or may the tamid daily sacrifice worship be perpetual. For Baruch Ata Hashem she'otcha levadcha na'avod. Blessed are you, Hashem, whom alone we worship. Um, if that blessing resonates a little bit with you, if you go to some Orthodox shuls on days when they do duchening or the priestly blessing, which in the diaspora would be on Yom Tovs that are not on a Shabbat, like, you know, first and last days of Sukkot and Pesach and and. and Shavuot, as long as it's not on Shabbat, they do duchening. Um, and in Israel, it could be every day. Uh, Sephardim do every Shabbat in diaspora and in Israel every day. Um, in some Sidurim, not all, um, this bracha is changed when the Kohanim do duchening. They change it to Baruch Hashem. There are changes earlier in the paragraph also, but they're all about sacrifices. But the Chatimahs change to Baruch Ata Hashem, She'otcha Levadcha Bi'ir'ah Na'avod. Adds one word to the Cairo Geniza version. Blessed are you Hashem, She'otcha Levadcha, you alone, Bi'ir'ah Na'avod. We worship reverently. In other words, I'm going to say this in sort of historical terms, in Orthodox shuls that do duchening, they preserve for duchening an alternative version of the Chatima, which is very similar to the original version of... I'm going to take it, sorry, scroll that sentence back again. It's going to be a long sentence. In Orthodox shuls that do duchening, and many of them that change this bracha, duchening, which is a, a evocation or throwback to the original temple service, they change the Chatima to what may have been, what is very similar to what may have been the original version of the Chatima that was still said when the temple was standing. Meaning that, not because they got it out of the Cairo Geniza, okay, but because it was preserved. When you do a smidgen of temple worship, actual duchening, you say, She'otcha levadcha, Na'avod, or na'avod. Okay? When it's post-70, the temple is destroyed, and you're not doing a smidgen of temple service, duchening, you say, you are praying for restoration in the future. When it's right there in front of you for a moment, the Kohanim offering up the priestly blessing, you don't, you're not just future looking, you're in a sense saying, this is the worship. It's all we got at the moment, okay? So that's interesting to me that, uh, and I, I looked it up this morning, and in the Saxidur, uh, it says that in Eretz Yisrael, they do not say that other version of the of this bracha. It's in the, in, in Eretz Yisrael, even with Duchening, they say, Baruch Hashem, Hamachazir But in the diaspora, when we have Duchening, we say, Baruch Hashem, And I know there are some non Orthodox shuls that do duchening. There are still a few conservative shuls. Some of them have restored it and some of them never stopped doing it. Um, Okay. I'd like to take two to three minutes of questions and then wrap up.
question, comment. Larry. Yeah, I'll repeat it. Thank you. Yeah. Yes. It's a reminder that... You better repeat the question. Yeah, thank you. The question, Larry, thank you. Larry is struck by that the... Um, it's not... It doesn't just say, and please rebuild the temple, but it says, please, God, dwell there. That's what we're asking for, right? It's a reminder... Um, for those who might scoff at the theological idea that God's presence is somehow experienced or worshipped by people in some place more than others. It is a reminder that the purpose of rebuilding a temple is not for us to have a place, but that we experience God's presence there. It's an idea that's taken seriously theologically. Yes. Isn't God everywhere? Yes. But... But we say God's, you know, and of course, there's all kinds of theology. You know, the Shekhinah goes into exile when the temple is destroyed and is uh, present with us. So there's lots of post-temple destruction theology to help us still experience God's presence, even though we don't have a rebuilt temple. Um, But that idea of God's Shekhinah, which literally means presence is the best, or indwelling, right, uh, is somehow linked to a specific place, right, a very archaic idea, right, and this goes back to, like, you know, the, the, the priestly part of the Chumash, right, that, that God's presence um, is somehow in some at least quasi-physical way, perhaps metaphysical or actual physical way linked to the temple more so than other places, right? So it's kind of a throwback idea. Not, um, as we say in other, uh, by the way, like in Musaf, the middle of Musaf, if you look at the text of the middle of Musaf on Shabbat, it's rebuild the temple so that we can go back there and do our sacrifices and there will be Kohanim and there will be Levi'im. It's more like we're pray, praying for the reestablishment of the glory of the temple. And here we are saying, we want your dwelling place to be restored. We miss having your dwelling place. Again, I think for contemporary people who have a different idea of God's presence in the world, um, that that's an odd idea. But that is the core idea. Yeah. Questions, comments? And if so, if you don't like sacrifices, you can just make the whole thing be about prayer. So you say avodah is prayer, and you could either leave out Isha Israel or say Isha Israel means good deeds of the righteous, um, and, and say what, we're just praying for restoration of Jerusalem, and it's all about prayer, and has nothing to do with the temple. Um, sorry, nothing to do with animal sacrifice. So the, there's nothing in this paragraph that has to mean animal sacrifice. Although, again, any regular davener would probably say to you, Ishe Israel usually means fire offerings. Maybe they would, there would be an Ola of tofu. They would burn tofu on the altar. Who knows? It could happen. Okay, let's wrap it up. Everyone stay healthy. Uh, be Torah. And we will meet next week. And then we will be off the last two weeks of August. And the first week of September, we'll be off three weeks in a row because then it'll be Rosh Hashanah, okay? Two weeks of August break, then Rosh Hashanah, and we will, God willing, meet that one time in September. That's not Yom Tov. 
You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.